Hello. After a hiatus of uh, several weeks and several trips, I am back on the road again, and I am enjoying a beautiful spring day. Um, it's Good Friday, and uh, I'm looking forward to uh, an evening service that we're planning to have with some friends. Um, and so I'm getting out to walk um, as, a, as a way of sort of centering myself, I guess. But uh, I, I, wanted to, I wanted to talk about a topic that came up this morning with a friend. So in the, in the larger sense, this might become part one of a series of talks on the topic that I call divergent facsimiles. Um, things which appear to be almost the same and yet which are, are heading in, in different directions. And so what you, at the point at which they may look identical um, is, is a pretty commonly shared perspective. So most people don't differentiate them. But what they fail to, fail to attend to is that they're headed in very different directions. And uh, I can think of several, and I think there are more that will emerge, but I'm going to talk about the first and the most, um, the one of which I am the most confident. Um, I have on my computer countless maps, I think is the best way to describe them, or lists, or um, they're, they're files of, of ideas that I've somehow wanted to present. And I have one called the four basic truths, and then I have one that's the two truths. And uh, the thing that makes both of those lists, the sort of the, the distillment of what it is that I know that I know. Um, and, and, and I'll point out that the the list of four came first. I thought I knew four things, and and then I made the list smaller, not larger. Um, so I don't think I don't know if if this is a process of whittling things down to a few core, and then um, building from from a core that is unshakable, which I believe is the process. I mean, the fear that people have when they whittle down what they thought they knew is that they may someday, they might someday find a, a way to attack everything they knew and know nothing and fall into existential hell. And that could happen. I won't deny that it could happen, but I guess I will continue to proceed from the fact that when I, when I get rid of all of the chaff that I have collected, that what I will find is a seed, and uh, then maybe I will have the humility to let that seed grow in the direction it wants to grow, rather than trying to grow it into the mold that I have. So, one of the two things that I think I know um, are that getting your own way and getting what you want are two very distinct uh, motives. And so the way that I 
summarize it is this, that getting what you want will satisfy you. Getting your own way will not. And I realize that, that this assertion which I made seems to be able to, to, to stand the scrutiny at a lot of different levels. But let me start with the simplest of levels and, uh, and, and let you take it deeper um, or follow me into deeper places. But, but here's kind of where it came up with. Um, here, here's where I came up with it. I'm sorry, I got to speak more intentionally. It came, it, it occurred to me in the realm of parenting because I was noticing um, parenting my own children and participating in some of the travails and parenting of, of others um, and observing large numbers of people who had been, I would say, um, poorly parented or who had um, sort of had been left to, to just wander in the world without parenting. Um, it's one of the ways I would describe my, uh, my friends who are incarcerated. Um, one of the things that I have, have observed so much is there, is there is a difference between getting your own way and getting what you want. So I was certain that there was a difference. I just did not know how to identify it. And because it, you know, this is what I call it. It's a divergent facsimile. They, they look almost the same. One is a copy of the other, but it is a copy of the other faced in the opposite direction. And so the way to determine which is real and which is the facsimile, or the, the, at least the way to distinguish the two, seems to me to be to look where they're headed, rather than trying to analyze what they are. And I, and I came up with, a, with kind of an archetypal, I don't know if that's right, but a, a paradigm that made sense to me, because it's something that happened in my youth. Um, I remember a habit I had when I was younger of I would get hungry, I would come into the kitchen, I would open the refrigerator door and stare into the refrigerator to see what we had to eat. And uh, I don't know if kids still do that. Our refrigerator's a little bit different. We have windows in our refrigerator, and so my kids don't specifically do that. Um, but it, it seemed to be sort of a, a, a common occurrence in my youth that that, that that would be something a young person would do. So we'll build from there. We'll build a story. So imagine, and, and again, some of this is, is tied to conditions in my youth, and they may have changed dramatically, but I, I think there's still something useful to be gleaned from setting up the story. So imagine this. Um, I come into the kitchen, and mom is beginning preparation for supper. And uh, in, in my generation, that was a common thing. Um, food, food was something which came in mostly in the form of raw ingredients, which some member of the family, and oftentimes it was the person who was identified as a 
nurturing specialist. So the nurturing specialist would take and transform the food from a from a form that was raw materials and turn it into something for supper. Okay, and now, now that I, I admit that that has changed, and I would actually say I think it has has sort of created a, a feedback loop. My, my wife was theorizing on this just the other day. Um, she she looks at a number of women who have decided that they're sort of proud of the fact, or at least they, they declare the fact very certainly that they don't cook. And for her, cooking is a very satisfying thing. And some of that is no doubt her temperament. But she, she feels like that it's probably something, something bigger. She feels that, that for a lot of people, there is something profoundly connected to the archetype of mother, of taking chaos and turning it into nurture. And she wonders at these women who have, have sort of gotten rid of that. Now, part of the reason they have, they have turned their back on that is because it is associated with an archetype. And so, in a society that is trying to prove its... Um, prove it that it is egalitarian, it behooves the women who are fighting for that to stand up for their rights, that that is not women's work, and nobody should expect them to, and so we've got to make a different arrangement. And it is possible that we have, we have entered a new phase of social existence and economic existence, which makes that rational. Um, there may not, you know, since, since the men don't have to go and slay saber-toothed tigers, then maybe, maybe the men should spend their time cooking in equal proportion to the women because you don't need the foolhardy male to go out and get you food. Um, and so may, we, have, we may have irrevocably passed that form of existence. And so it doesn't make sense to, to retain um, that balance of labor. And, and so I will accept that. I won't accept that it's happened, but I will accept that that's a, that's a valid hypothesis. But what my wife is noticing is that for a lot of women, they, they made the step in a series of small incremental steps. And that is that... They found the task of, of feeding their children sort of a, a never-ending treadmill, and it got them down. And I will tell you that for my wife, it's a, it's a never-ending treadmill of decisions. And, and, and it took a long ways into our marriage, 30 years into our marriage, to realize that she loves cooking, but she hates the never-ending treadmill of decisions of what to have. And uh, so what we, have, what we have done is she has decided that she wants to heroically face the unknown. And for her, the unknown is the, the week's worth of meals. And so she chooses to heroically face the week's worth of meals 
at a given time rather than to to have them press in upon her because she is found and i think it's such a cool picture of of the hero myth she has found that every day she will have to decide what to have for supper but if she faces it on her terms voluntarily that she enjoys it and it's one of the most meaningful things in her life but when she avoids the decision part and now this is her personality for others it may be the actual preparation part that they avoid but when she faces it voluntarily it's very meaningful when she avoids it then by the time she gets around to making the decision which is the thing that she doesn't like to make she's already too late in the day to have success and then she ends up putting something on the table of which she is not proud and so there, it sort of becomes a cliche that and, and, and we were moving away from it but it, came, it became a cliche for my wife that that nothing was ready to be eaten until it had been properly apologized for and just psychologically the the joy that she has found turning that around and saying no I I'm not apologizing I set myself up for success I decided our menu so I wasn't afraid of facing the decision and that let me face the, the process of actually preparing the food um, with joy now she's not locked into that menu and that's one of the cool things is that when something else suggests itself well then she doesn't have to make a decision the thing that she is dispensed with is making a decision when there are no no indicators of what to decide if it's Tuesday night and she has grilled chicken on the menu and on Tuesday night it seems that it's a chilly day and everybody would love a bowl of soup well then then she does she has a reason to make the decision but she voluntarily faces the decision and and life goes much better now I'm telling you all that I'm gonna get back to my mom and the refrigerator um, but the thing that my wife has noticed is that a lot of women for whatever reason either they didn't like the preparation or they didn't like the decision-making or they were it was too much they hadn't negotiated a balance of labor so they were being required to do more than they could do but whatever happened they took the first step which was to buy prepared food and prepare it for their family and the thing that happened she's hypothesizing is that when they started preparing when they started purchasing prepared food for their family now now that's a spectrum right so you know you could buy wheat and plant it or you could buy wheat and grind it or you could buy flour or you could buy heat and serve rolls or you could buy completely baked rolls you know th th there's a there's a whole spectrum there but she found that as, as she, she her hypothesis is that as women have moved away from moved closer to order they have found that order so stifling so they they buy they buy a pan of Marie Callender's tater tot hot dish I don't know if they make that but I imagine that she does well it can only be that there's no creativity they're locked into it 
And so providing that for your family is not as satisfying. You didn't take chaos and make it into order. You took order and, well, you took order and heated it up. And, and so her, her theory is that a lot of women have found feeding their family very unfulfilling. And so they have abandoned that. And they have more and more farmed that out to, well, whoever they could pay to do it. And the result is, well, what you observe in our society, roughly picky kids, right? I mean, if you're going to just nuke them their own plate of what they like, why not eat what they love every meal? And the funny thing is that kids who are picky do not, do not find, I mean, a picky kid does not become a gourmet. A picky kid gets so they eat one thing. They eat, you know, two things, macaroni and cheese and chicken nuggets, and that's it. And, and that is, that is disappointing because in theory, you're setting these kids up to be a, a gourmet, somebody who could say, you know, kid, I will give you anything you want to eat. And their tastes do not grow and flourish. They become more and more locked in. Okay, I see all those as negatives. And they're a product of, and, and, and then it becomes, they're, they're a product of it not being meaningful to prepare food for your family. And so my wife finds that, that, that she's convinced there are a lot of women who have lost out on something that they, that they would have loved had they, had they not taken the first step which made the second step sort of inevitable. If they had continued to have things for their family, which were basically inedible until she used her godlike creative spirit to turn them from formless and void into delicious and nurturing. Um, you know, I, I go into our pantry and in our pantry, there's very little that I can snack on. It doesn't keep me from going in there. But it's like, oh, yeah, help yourself. Here's a cup of flour. Have a couple of tablespoons of cornmeal. And you'll be going, I here, want you to enjoy a pinch of baking powder. And I'm like, uh, no, that's okay. But her, her divinity, and I think that is the proper word, her divinity produces cornbread, which is so delicious and so meaningful for her. And when the pressures of life cause her to buy cornbread and heat it up for her family, pretty soon even that seems like too much of a burden. And uh, so all of that is to say that I do not want you to think that telling a story about my mother simply being the one who's running the kitchen as some, um, some unexamined vestige of the patriarchy. I, I am intentionally telling you, you may still be offended, that's your privilege. Although, feel free to shut me off. You, you don't have to go on being offended unless you like being offended. And then just remember that you're listening because you like being offended. So even while you attack me, thank me because you enjoy being offended and I'm providing for your offendedness. And so even as you attack me, 
I think you owe me something because you sure could have shut me off. You get what I'm saying. Maybe you don't. Maybe I'm just crazy. But my point is that I am purposely telling you the story, and it's historically grounded. My mother did provide. Um, she, she was the one who was the nurturing specialist. My father was the provision specialist. And, and they categorized their roles, crisscrossed when they needed, and together they treated the purpose of their life was to raise, not kids, but to raise adults. And so they, I think they succeeded. Um, I think they would see themselves as succeeding. And when they, when, when they oriented themselves to, to seek first the most important thing, I, I think it's pretty profound how they found that all these other things were, were added to them. So, so they built their life around what they thought would be most meaningful, which is to provide my sister and I with a, a overlapping partnership of, of support. And uh, as, as they succeeded in that, they found that all these other things just seemed to be added to them. Um, economically, we were far more prosperous than we appeared. Um, and I, I could tell you more about that, but I mean, dad was a school teacher, which is not a high paying job. Mom was a housemaker. By the time they were in their mid forties, they owned a cabin in Northern Minnesota with lakefront property and a house in a suburb um, of the cities or just outside the suburbs. Um, they owned both of them without debt. I, that's pretty amazing. And yet it wasn't because they set out to be financial successes. It was because they set out to do properly the most, the most meaningful thing they could, which was to pass on their knowledge and their existence to another generation in the proper way. And they believed that the proper way was through roles. And those roles bring us finally to the beginning of the story where mom was getting supper ready. Not because dad was a caveman and would bonk her with his club if she didn't, but because she had chosen um, that. And again, I could keep defending it, but mom was brilliant. Dad was solid. And uh, uh, those two qualities are, are, are both profound, but there's no way that dad would argue that he was the brains, that he should have gone out and, and uh, been the teacher. He was from the beginning knew that, that mom would have been a far better school teacher than he was, but he was adequate. And as a matter of fact, some of his brilliance as a school teacher was from the very fact that he wasn't brilliant. And so he was effective at teaching kids who didn't learn super well. And uh, that's a, another story for another time. But it brings me to the point that I'm standing in front of the refrigerator and mom is getting supper ready. So it's about 45 minutes until supper. Now, one of the things that my mother knew and she knew this very clearly, that uh, you can't expect kids to eat a variety of things if they aren't hungry at mealtime. 
So we had a rough rule that said, no, it was a pretty strict rule, although it could be expanded at times. But I would say that the, the rule was you don't eat anything um, a, a half an hour before the meal. If you're hungry a half an hour before the meal, you wait until the meal because then your appetite will make you appreciate the meal more. But I would say roughly we didn't, we didn't eat anything in the kitchen um, without asking her permission. And I would also say, my sister could maybe challenge me on the specifics, but I think that I could basically recall that as you're coming up even an hour to supper, um, mom sort of held the right to veto. Now you come to the kitchen and say, I'm hungry, and she might, she might say, no, it's, it's going to be supper time. So, you know, I'm in that period. I'm in the period where it's not a sure thing that I need to eat. I could wait till supper. But I'm standing there, open the refrigerator, and uh, she's like, oh. and now this is, this is kind of like an archetypal story. I'm extracting out uh, uh, many different iterations of a similar story to kind of come up with the core of it. And uh, so, so bear with me. And I will tell you, this isn't exactly the words that were used, but roughly something like this would happen. I'd be standing there looking in the refrigerator, and she'd be like, what, what are you looking for? Oh, I'm looking for something to eat. And she'd be like, well, there's lots to eat. Oh, uh, yeah, but um, um, I, I, I don't want everything there is to eat. The celery and the carrots aren't calling my name, but I'm thinking that maybe something will call my name, and I'll, I'll say, oh, can I have some of that? So she suggests a few things. You know, let's say she does. She suggests, well, why don't you have some celery and put a little peanut butter on it? No, no, not really. Well, you could, you could have a... You could have a hot dog and slice it and put on a, on a piece of cheese. No, no, no. And finally, she's just tired of me sitting there and uh, letting all the cold out of the refrigerator. And she says, okay, you're not having anything. Supper's going to be in 45 minutes. Go out and get hungry enough, and then you'll want what I have to eat. So she lays down the law. And as I'm walking out of the kitchen, I notice that there's a bowl with apples. And the apples well, look pretty good. So I say, well, then can I have an apple? And right there, and my mom is exactly the kind of person who would have known exactly what she was dealing with. Because right then, the discussion crossed over in this, in this domain that I'm talking about, this facsimile, where the two look almost identical, but they're very different. I just crossed into a realm where she no longer knows whether I want something to eat or whether I'm trying to get my own way. Nobody could know, right? Maybe I am really hungry. And after I've been warned that, hey, the door is closing on you getting anything, might as well take something healthy. Maybe it's not the, the thing you were dreaming of, but it's healthy and filling and you could get it. And maybe my hunger, my appetite, I wouldn't call it hunger. I, I don't think I was ever hungry. Um, but my appetite was such that I could eat an apple and still eat a good supper 
and everything would be good. So it's possible that I wanted an apple. It is also very possible that I understood that a game had just been introduced. And that game appears to a lot of kids. And here's the game. The game is get your own way. And lots of kids are playing this game. The game of get your own way. Can I get my own way? I have just been issued a challenge in the game of can I get my own way? And the challenge is mom says, all right, that's it. Nothing to eat until supper. So I have a door shut. And immediately when that door shuts in my face, it's tempting for me to look at, are there any ways, any sneaky ways to get through this? And so what do I look? I see the apple and I say, aha. Now I know that she has those apples there and they're out on the counter precisely because she's hoping that I will eat more fruits. So I am guessing that this will be the hardest thing for her to say no to. She will probably say yes. And when she says yes, I will have defeated, I will have defeated the door. It's, it's like the game, you know, if you think that isn't the game that's being played, what is the whole proliferation of escape rooms? Escape rooms are simply that. Get the door closed on you and people find it meaningful enough to pay money to go and try to find a way out of the room. So, here I am. I'm trying to find a way through the door. And my mom is exactly, like I said, the kind of person who would know exactly what's at stake. What's at stake is she has to identify, she has to identify whether she is facing a honest want or whether she is facing a player in the game of can I get my own way? Well, what's the wrong way to find out the answer? I will tell you, because a lot of parents do this. A lot of parents say, well, yeah, it's just an apple. And, you know, it is 45 minutes till supper and, and they'll still, I'm, we're having something they'll like, they'll still eat it. And, and so there's no good reason not to give them. Let's just, let's just give them their apple and move on. And I guarantee that what you did, and, and as a parent, you, you give yourself one more justification. You're like, and they'll know that I'm a sensitive good person who could say no, but then later on realize that, that, that I had been a little bit too rash, and they will be so appreciative of my reasoned approach that they will just enjoy obeying me all the more. What a brilliant thought. And it's wrong. What will happen is if your child, if I, was, was playing a game of get my own way. When I conquer that level, what do I want? I want to level up. It's amazing how video games have tapped so many ways into these archetypes. And one of the things that, that video games got pretty early is it to keep people playing them. 
you play as challenging a level as you can beat. And then as soon as you win that level, they give you a more challenging. So what am I going to be doing? Well, I just won the game of nothing before supper, but I got an apple. I won. So I'm looking for the next level. I want to level up. I want the same game, but a little bit more challenging. And you will have an issue. If this is you and that's your kid, you will have an issue. I would bet money. You'll have another issue before the night is out. And the thing that will happen is you'll be frustrated. You'll be like, look at, I just showed you how reasonable and understanding I am. And now I'm getting attitude? What's going on? And I can tell you, they're playing the next higher level. Right? They get it for the same quarter, right? It, it, you know, if you can level up, you get to play longer. And it is meaningful to play their real game. And this is a lot of times parents don't know what the real game is. And it's sad. I, I wish that parents got it. Because there is a, is a tendency to think that, the, that the, the words that we have used to describe the game constitute the real game. And that is not the case. Your kids see right through them to the real game. And they... They want to play. Okay, so that's the wrong way to find out what's going on. What's the right way? Well, the right way is roughly to challenge the challenge getting your own way. So, so let's say my mother, and, and this would be exactly the kind of thing she would do. Well, she might do, because my mom would be sensing a whole bunch of things. She would, she would be triangulating, only it wouldn't be triangulating, it would be um, septagonizing or whatever, 20 points of reference, and, and she would be figuring out how my day is getting. But, let, but let's say I, she had a suspicion that I was honestly hungry, that it was something I want. She would have said, tell you what, go carry these things out to the garage for me. And when you're done, I'll have an apple cut up for you. And what did she just do? She said, no, I will not give you your own way. But I will allow you to negotiate. And what's a negotiation? Well, a negotiation is saying, I will give you more of what you want in exchange for more of what I want. Um... And you know what? The minute you do that, you will find out whether you, you have an issue or not. And, you know, what will happen is the kid will walk out, oh, never mind. And then you might need to say, no, look, you just made a deal. You told me you wanted this apple. So whether or not you get the apple is immaterial. You are going to conduct your part of the bargain. Otherwise, what, he'll come in and try the deal over and over again. And someday when you're weak, he'll win the level, right? Because that's what you do on a video game. That's, the, that's this archetype that you challenge the level, challenge the level, challenge the level till you beat it, and then you level up. And you don't want that going on. So, um, that is 
Now, now I want to go into the psychology as, as shallow as I might be in it of, of that. But that is, I think, the best picture of the, the difference between um, getting your own way and getting what you want. And if you do not understand that those two things are different, and if you are careless about, um, about which you're dealing with, you will have so much pain in your life. And very often you will grow weary of negotiating and, and you will fall back on whatever kind of tyrannical manipulation you can get by with. I'm not saying that theoretically, I'm saying that I have observed that. Um, maybe, you can, maybe you can hold out longer than most, but that's usually where it will lead. But if you can figure out a, a way to sort out what is getting your own way and what is getting what you want, um, you, will, you will teach the people with whom you deal um, such a, a, a so much more healthy approach. And so I think that the next walk that I take, I'm unpacking, so. Um, I think that the next walk that I take, we will discuss um, this principle in relationships. And then I want to look into a little bit of, of the psychology of, of what's going on. And so look forward to our next walk. And I wish you happy trails wherever you're headed today.